Well, last week we looked at those first two verses, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, normally he says by the will of God, but here the commandment of God, our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Without God, without hope in this world, how through God's only begotten Son, we have a Savior and therefore we have hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So, interesting, in the pastoral epistles, he adds mercy, because pastors need to have mercy on themselves, and they need to, to realize that God's having all kinds of mercy on them. But we know grace, we can preach grace, but then we have greater expectations of our walk with the Lord, of our human flesh, the abilities to overcome our flesh. Paul is a very mature Apostle said, things I don't want to do, things I do want to do, I don't do. Very honest of him, but it was also very liberating. He was one that had mercy to realize we're not perfected yet until we're out of this body and present with the Lord. But where does that peace and grace come from? It comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Night in verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So, uh, niceties are over. Let's get down to work. I urge you, which is a word that, that denotes urgency. Urgency sometimes is a doing something. In this case, it, the doing something was staying put. I, there's an urgency that you ground yourself there, Timothy. You got one foot in and one foot out. You're trying to figure out some way the Lord will lead you out of Ephesus because you don't like being there as a pastor. But the urgency is get both feet back in and commit by the command of God to be the pastor there of that church, or churches, I should say, of Ephesus. Ephesus was... a uh, Hundreds of thousands of believers. So Timothy wasn't over one church in some big cathedral. It was probably hundreds of churches in all kinds of locations. Probably from homes and villas and bars and fields and theater halls. Anywhere they could get together, they got together and that was church. You know that picture of church right there? is the way church has mostly been in the last 2,000 years. You know, we here in America have had a little 200-year Disneyland Christian experience. It's, in many cases, gotten you a promotion if you were a Christian. You, you say you're a Christian, it can get you into colleges that you normally couldn't get into. But boy, in the last... Two decades, things have sure changed, haven't they? They're starting to look more like the communist countries. If you're a Christian, we don't know if we want to hire you. If you're a Christian, I don't know if we're going to let you into the college. Becoming a Christian now is, you know, light still, but we're getting persecuted. You, you don't tell people, volunteer you're a Christian. It, it, it might get you beat up at a riot, you know. But... Um, most of Christianity, you think of behind the bamboo curtain, behind the iron curtain of the Soviet Union, they didn't get to meet together and sing songs and fellowship afterwards. And it was, 
I heard through the grapevine, you guys are meeting on the south edge of the park at noon on Thursday. Shh, yeah, you didn't hear from me. Yeah, okay. Sneak in, have a quick Bible study, and off they went. Hey, I hear up above the bar at 10 o'clock on Friday night. Yeah, yep, there's a few of us meeting up there. Somebody pulls out a ripped, torn page out of a Bible, has a few verses on it, and they read it, and that was church. So I just want to say clearly, you know, we're, we're now going, man, the COVID, it's really messed up our church. Do you, do you think the Lord's surprised by the COVID? Do you think the Lord knew about this like a couple billion years ago? So whatever the Lord had planned in 2020 for the church, it's happening. It's just, are we joining it? It is neat to see almost all the churches that I'm working with uh, as a coach, as a mentor in the appointment ministry, almost all of them, the ties have gone up during the COVID time. Not down, as everybody was so worried about. People say, I can't come and physically worship. How can I worship? They're reading their Bibles at home. They hadn't been doing that for a long time. They're praying with their families because... I'm going to kill him if I don't. <laughs> Lord, please make my dad an essential worker so he doesn't get so mad at us. <laughs> and, and people say, I, I, I can't go to church, but I love the church, and I love God for giving us the church. And, and they, they're finding, really, for the first time in their life, and in many, some of the lowest spots in their lives financially, they discovered how to give to God the top 10%, not eight or seven and a half or five or 2%, but a full 10% tie. And the, and the church is actually doing well financially. That everywhere I come across anyway. And I think a lot of people that were sort of going to church when fit their schedule, they're, they were ready to come back to church when it, it got opened. And so even now, you're, well, we can't have kids' ministry. I, I, you know, it's not in the Bible we had to have kids' ministry. Well, the youth group. Mm, no youth group in the Bible. Well, all I can do is talk to the older women in the church, and they're talking to the younger women. Oh, no, that's in the Bible. That's right. Have the older women teach the younger women. There, there you go. You have to do it on Zoom, but you're doing it. So, yeah, everything that's in the Bible to worship the Lord, I think we can do even if we are persecuted, even if we're in a drought time or in a rainy time or in a frozen time or in a heat wave or in the middle of an epidemic. It's irrelevant. We can still live out the Christianity of the Bible. And one of the essential things is that God's given to the church pastors and teachers to Share the word, and as they share it, God's spirit is in the midst of it, maturing us all in the Lord. Well, Timothy was having a hard time being a pastor. It, it is a unique calling. It is a weird thing to be a pastor. It really is. At least in our culture, it's, it's a strange thing. You, you've got to be a, a very unique person to stay in it for a while. You know, years back, they had a survey that the average seminary graduated nine people a year to be pastors. 
At the end of five years, only one of them would still be in the ministry. The number one reason that guys quit the ministry, people were too mean to him and his wife and his kids. Yeah, I've been there. Mostly no, mostly no. But yes, people can be ignorant sometimes. But um, yeah, Ray Comfort said one time that the six months, the six months that he pastored a church was the longest 10 years of his life. <laughs> I can say to this point, I have never once encouraged anybody into the ministry. I never have. Not my kids, not anybody at all. When guys said they wanted to be in the ministry, I would train them. But um, the first part of the training is, are you sure? Um, because it is, it's a very difficult place to be. It really is hard. And, and this is, again, where I think any leadership, church or otherwise, it typically doesn't pay. When you look at what it costs you versus what you get out of it, it costs you more uh, than, than being a leader was worth. And I think this is how people get bitter. Well, I've been a leader 10 years, and what do I have to show for it but being black and blue and bruised and injured? Um, yeah, that's why Peter said, you know, our eyes really got to be fixed on the life to come, God's reward for being in leadership. Because we're leaders, because we have to be. We're called to be. We cannot not do it. Jeremiah tried to get out of it, didn't he? He's just like, no way am I doing this. God says, every way you are doing it, I'm not giving you a choice. And then a few months later, he's in prison. I don't want to do this. You're still going to have to do it. Well, then he's in a pit. I don't want to do this. You're still going to do it. And, and, oh, by the way, you're going to never have one person repent in your entire life of pastoring on top of the prisons and the pit and the, yeah, it's, it often isn't worth it, but yet you cannot not do it because God has told you to do it. And here he's telling Timothy, um, as your spiritual dad, as um, an apostle of Jesus Christ, um, I am confident that you need to give yourself, fully commit yourself to the church there in Ephesus. There's a great quote that says this. When we don't always see the fruitfulness around us, we therefore need to remember the call behind us. And we're called to be Christians. We're called to come into the church. You know, the Bible says that God loves the church. Therefore, he died on the cross. You know, we often teach in our American thing, you know, it's all about you. God loves you. God has a personal plan for your life. You know, if you'll come to Christ, you'll be happier. If you come to Christ, you'll lose some weight. If you come to Christ, you'll have a better marriage and your checking account will grow by, you know, at least a digit in a year. If you come to Christ, it'll, it'll benefit you. But you really look at it, the benefit was the church. Read it in Ephesians 5. Christ loves the church. 
Therefore, he laid down his life for the church. Whatever you think of the church, it's his bride. I don't think you'd go up to somebody engaged going, I'm happy you're engaged. She is mean. She's ugly. And I don't know why you, you know, that's us. We're the bride. You know, beauty's in the eyes of the beholder. And, and Jesus looks at the church and he loves us. For us collectively as a church, he died. All of us members of the one body, but he died for the church. And he's asked us to become born again and be in the church, to be a part of the church. Well, the city of Ephesus was an unusual place. It's today uh, in modern Turkey, Asia Minor in the old days, on the west coast. Um, and uh, at the time, it was the center of Roman activity, the Roman world, in that region. It was about 250,000 people, the second largest Roman city in the entire empire. And it had one of the great wonders of the world, the temple to Diana or Artemis. This was an amazing temple. It was the first Greek-style temple ever completely made of all marble. It took them 120 years to build it. A hundred marble columns going up 40 feet high. It was truly an amazing building and very dedicated Artemis, Diana worshipers. Paul went over to Europe. And uh, so I'm going to leave you here in Turkey with all of these wild and crazy Diana worshipers in this second largest Roman city. I'm going to go to Europe. Yeah, it doesn't sound very fair, does it? But Paul takes off and goes to Macedonia. Today it's called Northern Macedonia. Used to be far larger than it is today. But even today, where it's located, it's surrounded by five different countries Greece, Albania, Kosovo, Serbia, Bulgaria. Used to be Yugoslavia, but now it's Serbia, and it's sort of broken down into Kosovo and so forth. But he says, I charge you. He commands. This is a strict orders from a commanding officer. I am commanding you to stay in Ephesus and to charge, to command some. Not everybody. A lot of times people read this, you need to charge everybody to not teach any other doctrine. He doesn't say that. Paul says, I need you to charge some. There's some in the church that are spewing some doctrine that is not healthy not edifying. It's causing divisions. Now, some people say, well, hold it, hold it. I, I thought Christianity was liberating. Aren't we supposed to have our own opinions about things? Aren't we entitled to uh, our own ideas? Isn't everybody's opinion equal? Not when it comes to the truth of the gospel. Not when it comes to the nature of Jesus and the truth of salvation. Now, are there aspects of 
the Bible and even of the New Testament of Christianity that people have varied opinions on, yes, that's true. But they're not essential issues. One person will say you can only sing these kind of songs. Another person says no instruments in the church. Uh, some say women shouldn't be pastors. Some say they can. Some say the Lord's coming at the, at the beginning of the tribulation, and some say he's coming at the end of the tribulation. Yeah, there's some variety of things, but it doesn't change who Jesus is, and it doesn't change the message of the gospel. These guys were talking about things that was strange doctrine. It changed the nature of God. It changed the nature of the gospel. And Paul said these guys have to be stopped. He tells them in Galatia, they were having the same type of things. This wasn't just an Ephesian problem. The area of Galatia was another region of Turkey, a lot of churches involved there. In Galatia 1, verse 6 through 8, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. There were people writing letters in Paul's name saying a different gospel. But he wasn't even ruling out the fact that some angelic being might show up looking like Paul, acting like Paul, talking like Paul. And it's just a demon trying to persuade them into some false doctrine. Paul saw this coming. He told the Ephesian church before he departed from there in Acts 20, verse 29 to 31, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also among yourselves, men rise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch, remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. I saw it. Ephesus was a big college town, a lot of academics. He saw people that came into Christianity, but he also saw that their academic pride was still there intact, that they hadn't quite been broken under the hand of God. And this young man, Timothy, would not get the same respect as a great intellect, an older man like Paul. Paul was a genius. Paul was a very educated person. Timothy, not so much. He was just from a young boy from Lystra, probably never went to college, didn't, definitely didn't know the languages that Paul did and had the, the education that Paul had. But he, he just saw that you guys aren't going to get that kind of respect that I've been getting. And from outside and inside, they're going to come and it's going to be a fight. And so he says, I charge you, I command you as a commanding officer, don't let them continue on unopposed. As we read First and Second Timothy, we discover that Timothy was a very timid person. In personality, he wasn't the A-type personality. He was a very gentle guy and, and he didn't like controversy. We're going to see here in a minute. And, and Timothy, he had stomach problems probably because he had to confront people and it bothered him. He wasn't sleeping good and the food wasn't digesting and, 
And Paul said, well, take a little medicine. The only medicine I can think of is a little wine to try to help you with that stomach issue. But, but Timothy was a timid guy, and, and this was not easy in his personality. I, I'd say if you can confront people easily, you're, you're, something's messed up with you. Because I'm an A-type personality, and I get an ulcer when I have to confront people too. But yet, some people were, were being annoying with their teaching. They weren't wolves. They weren't bad people. They were just talking about nonsense stuff that was not helping to edify. But then there were some that were wolves. So there was a variety of people that needed to be rebuked. And in 1 Timothy 1, verse 18 to 20, we see to the extent some of these guys were demonic. In 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20, this charge, that same word, I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may, what? Wage the good warfare. You're not just pastoring and teaching and feeding the sheep. You also have a rod and you've got to beat the wolves. Having faith and a good conscience, with some having rejected concerning the faith, I've suffered shipwreck, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Heavy stuff. Jude says we need to defend our faith. Listen to how he talks about it. In Jude 1.3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly, for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Yes, it's a good thing to know the truth, but there's a point in your maturity in the Lord that you've got to fight for the truth. And I've had to fight Jehovah Witnesses as they were trying to get their claws in members of our churches. I've had to fight Mormons and over their doctrine there was the Boston Church of Christ. I don't know if you remember those guys. They came out of the Church of Christ. Church of Christ eventually kicked them out. A guy named Kit McKean. And it was evil what they were doing. But they were, they were dominating with tens of thousands of college kids. And they were trying to rip them out of our church as well. And I had to debate them and fight them and study, study, study to, to, to show them how false their doctrine. Eventually, Kit McKean uh, ran off with all the money and disappeared and the whole thing imploded, but um, it was obvi- it was just so demonic, and it was a lot of extra work to have to fight one by one by one, confronting uh, those spreading such doctrine. In verse four, he says, "Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in the faith." So even things that aren't out and out heretical. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just not helpful. What they were doing exactly, we don't know. It has something to do with the Jewish genealogy. I know in the Jewish mystic religions, they very much leaned on genealogy. Um, you know, there are several genealogies in the Bible. Uh, you know, I knew it, it bothered me years back when guys would take the genealogies and say this name means this, and they would come up with this sentence, or they would do the numerology with the genealogies and come out with five 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 nine six four four four, and then they go to the Greek and the Hebrew, and and then if you do it backwards, it you know it has some message, and and boy, guys were reading book after book after book on numerology, and it was just a complete waste of time and. 
Of course, they all got different messages with their different, their different pneumonology. And, um, and it, it was not evil of them. They, they were just really hungry to go deeper somehow, and that was it. It was definitely distracting. And, and uh, I'll tell you, I've, I've seen the, the sons of Seth statement, you know, who, who was the sons of Seth? You know, they were, they became the Nephilim, the giants in the land uh, back in, before the flood. And I've seen Bible college, entire 500 kids get into that and literally for an entire school year, debate and debate and debate till they had to make a rule. No more talking about <laughs> Nephilim or the sons of Seth, or you get kicked out of college. I mean, it was that bad. So I've seen some very silly things become very, very distracting and causing divisions. In Romans 16, verse 17 and 18, we see the divisions happening there in the Roman church. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. In Thessalonians, he says, kick them out. For those who are such do not deserve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, by smooth words, flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple, rather than to godly edification which is in faith. The bottom line is it's not building them up. They're not growing. They're not being strengthened. It's not this thing where they're going, having a greater faith and love for Jesus Christ. It's more of a prideful, intellectual, academic thing. But I, I do want to just say something that I've observed through the years. I, I have seen numerous divisions in the church, not just the church I pastored, not that many, but in other friends of mine in their churches around the nation and even outside the country. It'll always be a something, you know, typically in the Calvaries, it's been Calvinism. You get some guy who hears some teaching by Sproud, Legendaire, and and. And then, you know, then they read some 4,000-page book and, uh, and they, they want to debate everything. But what I've noticed, whether it's that or Arminianism or Pentecostalism or not Pentecostalism, whatever it is, I've noted this, that there are some who genuinely think, man, I, I, I'm changing in my doctrine from Calvary Chapel, and they, they quietly leave. But the ones that start undermining the pastor and undermining the church. It's really not about Calvinism or Arminianism or Pentecostalism. They are truly just warped individuals. There, there's something wrong in their character. And I, I don't know if they're dropped on their head when they're babies or they're abused. I don't know what it is. But there's something wrong with them. And it's really not about the doctrine because all kinds of people come up with different doctrines and leave Calvary Chapel. You know, they, they, they say, oh, I just want a place where I can, you know, speak in tongues and, and dance more and whatever. I want to go to a more Pentecostal church. And, and they, they don't cause a church split. They're not trying to get people to be mad at the pastor and leave with them. They just simply go and find a church where they can dance around more. And, and, I, and I say, praise the Lord. I don't want you here mad because you can't dance. Just go somewhere where you can do what you want. That, that, that they have the same experience you do. 
And so if somebody says, man, I'm a Calvinist, praise the Lord, go, go to a Calvinist church. Almost 100% of the time, they're like, well, the teaching's really good, but the worship's dead. It's like, yeah, might try to figure out why that is. Um, but, but either way, I, I, I've seen so many pastors through the years beat themselves up that somehow they weren't bigger people or leaders or more dynamic or more intellectual to have wrestled the Calvinism out of those guys and calm them down to stay in the church. And as many times as I've seen that, it really isn't about anything about doctrine or Calvin or Arminian or Luther or anybody else. There's something in them that is destructive, divisive. And Paul says in Romans there to mark those men and avoid them because today it's Calvinism and three years from now it'll be some other thing that they cause division with. And they really do need to repent and get healed from their divisive ways. Well, in verse 5, now the purpose of the commandment is this, the love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. He says, look, if what's happening is supposed to be happening, the doctrine should create this overwhelming love in their life. And they are just loving God and they're loving others. That's what Christianity really does. And, and I'll just out and now be honest with you. Most Christian churches in America don't produce that. It's a rare thing to go to a church and walk away saying, I feel loved. There's a lot of legalism. There's a lot of tradition. There's a lot of things that people are hung up on, and it really isn't about loving on people. And even if they sometimes try to love people, they, they discover they don't really have that much love, and they're, the churches are cliques, and they're self-consumed, rather than this open heart of love reaching the community and welcoming people in. And he said, as you, as true Christianity will bring this purity of heart out. It'll bring this, this life where you, you just, you're not a hypocrite. You have a sincere faith, and, and, and you just, your conscience is clear. You're just, oh, with freedom and peace and joy, just loving God and loving others. That's the key. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says this, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass, a clinging cymbal. Though I have all gift of prophecy, I understand of all mysteries and all knowledge. That's the, the Calvinist type guys. Got it all figured out. And though I have all faith that I could move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Skipping on down to verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. After that, it says what it isn't and what it is. But in essence, he's saying the agape love is just this enduring kindness. You know, you, people say, oh, I love you, and then they treat you like dirt. Or they say they love you, and then they treat you like they don't love you. I think saying I love you is way overrated. And I really don't know if our culture even knows what love is anymore. It's so wrapped up in feelings and 
romance and this happy, joyful emotion that it's sort of gone. It's just kindness. You're always kind. Just n- nothing causes you to leave kindness. <laughs> Whether you're in the store, on the freeway, with whatever the situation is, it doesn't cause you to be selfish and angry and mad. And it's, you're just so full of love. It's all about people. It's all about their needs, their wants, their desires before yours. And true Christianity, that's what we see in Jesus. He really cared, really loved these people, whether it was feeding the multitudes or sitting at a well with the woman who had been married five times before and the man she's living with wasn't even her husband. It was just, that's what true Christianity brings. And also, it's an enduring kindness. In 1 Corinthians 13, 7 and 8, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That love just never fails. It's just, you're not going to rattle me. You're not going to stop me. You know, we think of the prodigal son story, right? That father just kept looking every day, believing that that son would hit the bottom and, and his flesh would destroy him. And he would come back and his dad, before anybody else in town could see him, he ran out and grabbed him and put a robe on him and ring on his fingers. The whole town would think he came back prosperous. He had a big party for his son. Nobody knew that he had been in the pig pen. Nobody knew what had gone on. He loved it. We just see that. In John 13, 35, by this you will know that you're my disciples. The whole world will know if you have love one for another. And then that pure heart. I think, I think a pure heart is just being lined up with God. Loving what God loves to the degree he loves it and hating what God hates to the degree he hates it. And so if God thinks this thing is, is impure, I, I, I hate it too. It's impure to me as well. If God loves this over here, I love it also. And it's not just something consciously I'm doing. It's truly I am seeing things the way God sees things in this world. And I can say yes and no to things because I just am walking in this oneness, this unity with God. And that's what Matthew 5, 8 says. Blessed are the pure in heart. What? They shall see God. They'll see him clearly on the earth. Who, who he is, what he likes, what he hates, and, and, and walk in that. And then, of course, they're going to be seeing him for all of eternity. I love that story. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. He, he, he was a guy just walking in that oneness with the Lord. A good conscience. You know, we are physical, emotional, and spiritual beings. And that conscience, it's emotional and it's spiritual. It's a real something. We can't, can't find it with an MRI or an X-ray, but it's there, isn't it? Little kids, they can feel like, oh, I just lied. I just cheated on that spelling test. I just stole something. I took something I shouldn't have. They, their conscience, God gave it to them, and they can feel it clicking in there. 
joyful if they do the right thing and grieved if they're doing the wrong thing. But it's interesting that as we go on in the scripture, the, the Bible starts talking about us as Christians that the conscience is not always telling us the truth. Because we can feel guilty about things that God's forgiven us for. And, and we're still walking in this guilt of something we said or did. And God says, I've washed you as white as snow. I've forgiven you. But yet our conscience is still causing us to, to carry a burden that we're not supposed to carry. In 1 John 3, 20 and 21, for if our heart condemns us, now God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. So he's just saying that, yes, if, if your heart's condemning you, don't forget, God's greater than your feelings. God's greater than, than, than what you're seeing and feeling. God's greater than all of that. If your heart doesn't condemn you, then, then you're walking in faith. But there's, there's times where people will come up and say, man, I just, I just know I'm not right with God. Why? Well, I did this thing a couple weeks ago, and, well, did you ask God to forgive you? Well, yeah, I did right then. Then you're forgiven. And they'll say, well, no, I, I don't think so. <laughs> and I re- have him read First John 1, 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'll ask him to read that, and I'll say, what does it say? It says, well, if we confess our sins, he'll forgive us of our sins. And, and I'll say, well, now, in the Greek now, that only means some of your sins. <laughs> Let me read that again. It says, God, if you confess our sins, God will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah, but in the Greek, it just, it's referring to some, not all sins. Then they start arguing with me. No, it doesn't. It says all sins. Are you sure? Okay, then you're forgiven. Believe it now. But God, sometimes we, we need that. There's, in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say to things? If God's for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring charge against God's elect, it says in Romans 8, 33. It is God who justifies, he, he is who condemns. It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercessions for us. Your heart condemns you. God's not behind that. Yes, you wounded your conscience. You sinned and your conscience, you felt that emotion. You felt that spiritual grieving of the spirit. And yes, sometimes when we sin, we wound ourselves. And sometimes it takes years for that wound to heal. Sometimes not in this lifetime will it heal. I know people that have been sinned against and they're still trying to heal. And I know people that have wronged other people. And even though the other people have fully forgiven them, they still carry that wound of having wronged another human being to such a degree. But God doesn't want us to live in that. He wants us to have a clear conscience. Clear and again, walking in purity, yes, but clear and trusting him that we're forgiven. And then uh, in 1 John 4, 17 and 19, love has been perfected amongst us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect 
Love has cast out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. So there's that place that God wants us to have, that freedom of joy. Everything I'm doing in love is not so I get rid of the guilt. I'm doing it not so I don't feel guilty later. I'm not doing it because I don't want God to be angry with me if I don't do it. No, no, I, I just, I, I'm free. I'm doing it because out of a pure heart, I just love what God loves. I hate what God hates. I'm doing it, and it's not to try to get out from underneath a pile of guilt. That's just my emotions. God's made me a white as snow without spot and blemish or any such thing. I'm a bride in a white wedding dress ready for the wedding day. And then that sincere faith, not with wax. The literal word is without wax. We would say hypocrisy. You guys know that story of the statue, right? A good one guy who's a reputable statue maker. If he's doing something, he's been working on it for six months and he's trying to perfect that nose a little bit and up cause the nose. Well, a reputable guy just throw the thing away. But a guy who's not reputable, they could get wax and they could bend it back and you could never tell that that ever got broken until there was a hot day. <laughs> And then all of a sudden, the nose starts sliding on down. And so people would advertise. No hypocrisy. Without wax. And that's what the word here is. No hypocrisy. We, we have a pure, genuine thing here. I'm not acting like this at church. You know, I've I raised four kids and... All of them didn't hate the church. They didn't, they didn't ever feel weird about the church, you know. And, and, and I've had pastors ask me, you know, what, what did you... And I'll just tell you, as a very young man, I was very impressed with this lady and her two sons uh, when I was in college. And I asked her, and she goes, you know what? We're just always the same people. We are who we are. And, and we, we go to church, but we're always the same people. And I, and I thought, man, that's just so true. And I can tell you, I was always the same person, whether I was at home with my kids or with church people or preaching or with a family potluck, whatever, I was the same person. So I never had to say to my kids, okay, guys, family meeting, don't tell anybody at church what daddy said about mommy. <laughs> We never had any of those conversations where they had to go to church going, I've got to pretend that everything's okay at home so dad doesn't get fired. Um, some pastors have put their kids under such things. We don't want that. We are who we are. And boy, especially as we get through this chapter one, Paul is just setting us free going, look, I'm an apostle of Christ and I am at the same time the biggest sinner I know. <laughs> That's what we're going to talk about next week. Paul, Paul wasn't some guy walking around saying, the reason I'm an apostle is because I am so holy, I don't even have B.O. and my poop doesn't stink. And I, you know, I'm just, I'm living above everybody and that's how you know I'm God's apostle. He's just a real guy with real struggles. And he's honest all the way through the New Testament about it. 
He was an apostle because God called him, not because he was some special holy guy. Without hypocrisy, be who we are in Christ. God's brought us as far as we are by his grace. Well, verse 6 and 7, from which some have strayed, having turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. They, they just want to be up front. They want the limelight. They want people to look at them and say, oh, isn't he such a great leader? And uh, they've strayed. They've taken the whole church off course. They've missed the mark. They've turned aside. They've taken this boat off course from where you're supposed to be going. It's a fruitless discussion, idle talk, irrelevant discussion. I like the King James Version. It says, vain jangling. <laughs> They've strayed by vain jangling. Not, not heresy, not evil guys necessary, just young, foolish guys wanting to be seen as a leader when they don't have the goods to be a leader. They want to be a teacher. They just don't. They're, they're coming up with all kinds of interesting stuff. Just It's not true. They're making it up. They're trying to sound interesting. And they're trying to sound intelligent. We don't want to forget that James 3.1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. We as pastors and teachers, we got God's sheep, and we're supposed to be taking them directly in and out of pasture directly to Jesus, to the truth. And if we are taking them off course, when we stand before God, we're going to be judged for such things. We have a very high responsibility. So nobody should be wanting to jump into that responsibility unless they're definitely called to be in that place. He also calls them ignorant teachers, understanding neither what they say nor the things that they affirm. They're, they're, not, they're not evil guys in this case. They're young, prideful, arrogant guys that are just being foolish. And you, you need to call it for what it is. Guys, you're young. You want to be teachers. We, he's going to say in chapter 3, you want to be a leader. That's a great thing. I want to encourage that. But that doesn't mean you, you're ready to start leading the church. Man, I have seen so many ignorant teachers through the years. I remember right after I started pastoring in 1985, like four months after I started pastoring, you got the PTL guy, Pat and Tammy Baker, all the weird stuff, and then Jimmy Swaggart right after that. And here I am, a 24-year-old guy, and everybody's looking at me like, well, where's your Rolls Royce, Brian, you know? Where's your airplane, you know? It was just bizarre. And then we had the 88 reasons Jesus coming back in 1988. Remember that? In Florida, there was some astronaut who figured out the code of the Bible and the Lord was going to return on a certain day because he had figured it out by the stars and it was a big movement and then the, it didn't, the Lord didn't come back in 88 no joke, the same guy printed the next book 89 reasons Jesus coming back in 89 and it had just as many people pushing that I remember some guy saying just read it just read it and I'm looking at this whole thing going he says we don't know the day or the hour. There it is. This guy tells us he knows the day and the hour. The Bible says nobody knows the day or the hour. I'm not going to waste my time with that. But I had to defend it. Remember the Y2K? The Chuck Missler people? They did damage. Boy, I could tell you some horror stories. I had a lot of young single mothers from the barrio 
in San Diego freaking out. They barely could make their bills in their little apartment with their four kids. And, and you know, they're supposed to buy a $3,000 Y2K kit to get them through the next year. They're going to starve to death. And a lot of women did take out loans to get their dried rice and meat and their barrel of whatever to survive the Y2K. Uh, I can remember having to fight that for a whole year. And Harold Camping, remember that he had dates September 12th, the Lord's coming back, and boy, people were aggressive about that. Aggressive about all these things. Foolish, foolish people. Well, there in verse 8 now, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person before the lawless and subordinate for the ungodly, for the Sinners, for the unholy, profane, for murders of fathers, murders of mothers, manslayers, fornicators, of sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. You, you can sort of tell Paul's heated here, can't you? The law is good if you use it rightly. It's for, and then he just tries to come up with the most despicable things a human being can do. You know, kill their own parents and, you know be sodomites and fornicators and manslayers and the law does one thing it shows us we're sinners that's it that's all it has the power to do <clears throat> the law in and of itself is is from god but it's from god for that one thing in psalm 19:7 the law of the lord is perfect converting the soul the testimony of the Lord is good, making wise the simple. In Romans seven twelve, he says, Therefore the law is holy, the commandment holy, just, and good. But in Galatians 3, he makes it clear there in verses 19 to 25 that it's like a tutor that tutors us, and once it convinces us and tutors us to see that we are sinners, then you graduate and you go off to living by faith now in the Savior, Jesus Christ. In Romans 3, 19 to 20, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, this is why, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, let's count them up, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And he makes it clear, it's not for the righteous. Now, I want to make this clear. This isn't saying not for those who are living a perfect, righteous life, because nobody does it. Who are the righteous people? It's those who by faith have believed in Jesus and God has declared us righteous. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, became sin for us that we become the righteousness of Christ. Again, in Galatians 3.24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we no longer are under a tutorer. In Galatians 3.11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And he gives this very long list, pretty self-explanatory, 
for the most part. So I just want to ask the question, when in Jesus' ministry did he use the law? For example, the rich young ruler. The guy comes up and says, hey, Jesus, I've asked many rabbis this question. I just have a sense that I'm not righteous with God. And everybody knew this was a good man. And what did Jesus say to him? Good teacher, I have a question for you. And Jesus says, good, you're throwing that word around. Why are you calling me good? And then in essence, we discover that he saw himself as good. Jesus says to him this, just do what the law says. And what's the rich young ruler say? Oh, I've kept the law my whole life. Now at that point, Jesus being gracious could have said, dude, you are 10 out of 10 a sinner. All 10 commandments you've broken, I guarantee it. He, Jesus could have been rude like that. But here's what I think Jesus thought. Huh, you've kept all the laws perfectly, huh? Well, let's try number one. Number one commandment of the Ten Commandments is have no other gods before you. This is what I think Jesus was thinking. But what does he say to the rich young ruler? Go sell all your goods and give it to the poor and come follow me. Ah, oh, I can't leave my goods behind. Because <laughs> that was his God. He went away sad. We know later on in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, if a man gives all his goods to the poor, it profits him nothing if it's not from a heart of love. So that wasn't what Jesus was trying to get, get him poor. But on the other hand, when did Jesus not use the law? For example, when the woman was caught in the act of adultery in John 8. He doesn't have to convince her she's a sinner. She's already a sinner, right? And so seeing her there, what does he do? He just shows her grace. And mercy. Woman, where are your condemners? They've all left. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Well, hold it, Jesus. You didn't tell her that she was a sinner. You didn't point out that she needed to repent and pray the sinner's prayer. What you know, Jesus, you're you're messing up here. You need to go to Billy Graham's course and, and learn how to do this right. He didn't have to use the law, he didn't have to reveal anything. She knew she was a sinner. She had been caught in the act of adultery. All he did was show mercy and grace to her. What about the woman at the well? She comes out and then she starts acting all prudish and religious like she's doing well. Well, our father's up here now. They worship up here at this well of Jacob. And you Jews say this and that. And Which uh, place should we worship? Are the Jews right or is the Samaritans right? Jesus is like... I know you. You've been married five times before, and the man you're living with isn't your husband. <gasps> I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a sinner. And then what does he do? Just grace and love. Ask of me, I'll give you water into eternal life. It's not up here, it's not in Jerusalem. It's worshiping God in spirit. That day's coming very soon. She was convinced out of the love and the grace, you've got to come out and hear this guy, Jesus. He's got such a wonderful message. Well, Paul ends in verse 11. 
according to this glorious gospel. We know what he calls it in Acts 20, the gospel of grace. This glorious gospel of grace of the blessed God, which has committed to my trust. Timothy, this is not some gospel that can move around and slush around and you can add any old thing you want to it and it'll come out to the same thing. You know, that's the world's way of thinking. As long as you're sincere, that's the only truth that matters. God will meet you at the pearly gates with a come on into heaven because you, you had this sincere heart. No. The truth of the gospel is true because it's true. And it's a very clear, direct truth that will set men free. And he protects it and all its boundaries. The gospel is not this. It is not that. It's not about genealogy. It's not about legalism. It's not about Judaism. It's not about all of the Old Testament laws. It's not about, it's, it's about Jesus, the work on the cross, his death and resurrection, and the gift of salvation to those who are willing to come to him who need a savior. And Timothy, you need to guard it like I guard it. It's now into your trust as God put it into my trust. I'll just say this to you guys. Share the gospel. I, I encourage you this week. Just, you got one business card, invite him to church. That's it. Do that. Or write down a scripture God spoke to you. And just go hand it to a neighbor. You got to get gas in your car? Just as you're pumping gas, look around and just go up to a guy and just say, I just wanted you to know Jesus loves you. And walk away. Do something. We've all been given this glorious gospel. You know, I, I do think the whole point that Christ made is that we would be lights and salt and that people would know about Jesus. Do something. Because we have a glorious gospel, don't we? Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Continue to speak it deep, deep, deep into our hearts. In Jesus' precious, precious holy name.